0: Uh, So I would invite you to turn to chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians. Uh, If for some reason you don't uh, have a Bible with you, uh, you're more than welcome to grab one that should be in in the front rack in front of your chair, and uh, page 953 uh, in our Bibles that are provided for you. As we come to chapter 4, I want to ask you a question. Are you living... For the kingdom of God today. There's lots of different kingdoms that we can be living for. But are you living for the kingdom of God today? You may say, Pastor Adam, what does it mean to live for the kingdom of God? Well, another follow-up question to kind of narrow that down in your understanding is, is your thinking, values... And priorities wrapped up in the rule of God in your life and in this world? Are your thinking, values, and priorities wrapped up in the rule of God in your life and in this world? Or maybe you're living for another kingdom. You're living for your own thoughts, your own values, your own priorities. We see a blueprint of what it looks like to live for the kingdom of God in Matthew 5, verses 1 to 12. We're not going to turn there, but it's the the blessed passage. You're familiar with it? Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are meek. Blessed are those uh, who hunger and thirst above all else for righteousness. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We see the exact opposite of that description when it comes to the priorities and the values of the church at Corinth. See, rather than seeking God, the church at Corinth were seeking uh, the enticements and the prestige of this world. They were seeking to model the ways of the world in the assembly of the local church. They'd forgotten what their true identity and, and where their true sense of, of worth was found. That's one of the reasons we see it at the end of even chapter 3, again by way of review, Paul says in verse 21, So let no one boast in men. Don't find your sense of worth in who you think you are or who you follow, or what bandwagon you decide to get on. It says, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. In other words, Paul is saying, don't get on all these different bandwagons and hobby horses and following people and sects and groups. Because in Christ, we have everything that we could ever need. Our inheritance is eternal and is secure in Christ. He is the one we follow. We are Christ's and Christ is God's the only way we will find satisfaction in a world that is opposed to God is by realizing all that we truly possess in Christ. That is what it looks like to follow after the kingdom of God. So we have to ask ourselves, will we seek after the priorities and the wisdom That this world offers, or are we going to seek after the kingdom of God? And what we're going to do in chapter four, we're going to uh, just begin this this morning, but over the next couple of weeks, I want us to look at three key kingdom priorities that we must have in our individual lives and that we must have as a church. These are the three key kingdom priorities that the Scriptures call us to in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And we're going to begin by again reciting together the key theme in our study of 1 Corinthians. We're going to get that on the board so nobody has to look at their old notes, right? (laughs) And we're going to say it together, okay? We must... Cling to what truly matters. So easy to cling to those things that don't really matter. If you ever doubt that, go to your basement, go to your closet, and say, I'm going to do some spring cleaning. And that's going to prove that we have a tendency to not cling to what truly matters. We get cling to a lot of other stuff. And in the spiritual life, those other stuff can really cause us to go off course. So let's pray together. Father, I pray this morning that you would speak to us, Lord, through your word. Father, would the Holy Spirit be active in our hearts? Father, would we be characterized as as individuals and as a corporate people that are striving for the kingdom of God? Lord, we live in the midst of of many false kingdoms, and Lord, those false kingdoms, they can creep into our hearts, they can creep into our church, and they can do what we see in 1 Corinthians, create disunity in the body. So Lord, I pray that we, by Your grace and Your strength, would truly cling to what matters would we be a people characterized by your kingdom in Jesus name amen priority number 1 kingdom priority number 1 is faithful stewardship we see this in verses 1 to 5 of 1 Corinthians 4 i want us this morning to look at some characteristic Characteristics of what faithful stewardship in God's kingdom looks like. Look at verse number 1. Paul says, this is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. If we're going to be faithful stewards in God's service, if we're going to be faithful stewards for the kingdom of God, looking at what is to come, not simply what is now, it's going to require faithful stewardship. And verses 1 to 2 show us that a steward recognizes his or her call. How many of you at your job have people working under you? Anyone? Okay, we see a few sheepish hands. A good employee recognizes why they were hired, right? There is a recognition and an acceptance and an eagerness to follow in the calling that they have been given. So it is in God's kingdom. Verse 1, Paul gives himself as an example. Paul recognizes who he is. He says, this is how you should regard us. Now, remember the context of, of 1 Corinthians, that there's a lot of different opinions going on regarding Paul. Some like him, some don't. Some, some think that, that other, others are, are are they're worthy of being followed and some are holding on to Apollos and some are holding on to Peter and, and it's, it's a mess. But Paul says this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ, stewards of the mercies of God. You see, Paul is not saying this is how you should regard myself. And he doesn't even include just himself. Apollos, all of the people that you are bickering about, this is how we should be regarded. Servants of Christ. Stewards. One who is not seeking his own advantage, but one who has been called by God. You see, if we are going to be faithful stewards and servants, we have to realize who we are a servant and a steward to. It's not to self. It's not to, as we will see in a little bit, to others. It is to Christ. Just look at that first phrase there, servants of Christ. What he's saying here is Jesus is... Their Lord and Master. When you look back at chapter three and, and you look at verse five uh, four, um, you see the division. It says, When one says I follow Paul, and another I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human or fleshly? And then look at verse five. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? And he answers it, servants, through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. He says, we are simply servants of God. And God has assigned fruit to each of us. We are simply called to faithfulness. You see, they were servants of Christ, and then it says in verse 1, they were stewards. That word stewards has the idea of a household manager. That when a master would go away on a trip, he would place a household manager in in charge of of the outworking of the responsibilities of the house. And he says here, we are God's fellow workers in chapter 3 and verse 9. It's not that they were in charge. It's not that they called Uh, the shots and spoke on any authority of their own, Paul says, we are simply managing what God has entrusted us with. So while they were servants of of Christ, they were also stewards of this mystery of God. You may say, Pastor Adam, what's he talking about? That they were stewards of the mysteries of God. Well, if you look at chapter 2 and verse 1, Paul says, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. And then verse 7, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Verse 9 explains that what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. The mysteries of God that Paul, Apollos, Cephas, or Peter, uh, what they were all entrusted with was the mystery of God that formerly it was not known, but God has now revealed that a crucified Messiah was raised... And that true wisdom can only be found in Jesus. He is the one we are to give our lives uh, to and live our lives for. It is only in Christ. So a steward recognizes his or her call. Paul says, don't lift me up on a pedestal. I don't want. I am not even for the group in the Corinth church that is holding me up. No, because I'm simply a servant. I'm a steward of the message of the gospel. That is not my place to be lifted up or to be pulled down. Are you recognizing this morning who you are? What you are called to be? Of course, we would not put ourselves in the same category as Paul, not that he was a super Christian, but Paul was an apostle. He was called to first deliver the message of the gospel that was a a brand new message. And while we are not apostles, we are servants and stewards of Christ. Are you living in light of your calling this morning? Have you gotten a little off track following distractions? But there's a second characteristic of a steward that recognizes his or her call. Not only do they recognize themselves, the part God has given them to play, a faithful steward understands what is required of him. Paul says it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Faithful. Think of all of the, the parables that Jesus said about the, the, how, the, the, the master that went on a journey and he placed his stewards, his household managers, in charge uh, of different things and, and, and he calls them to faithfulness. And some were faithful, they, they reaped um, and, and were given rewards, some triple, some double, um, uh, some more, some less. But as the the manager comes back, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. See, Paul understands what is required of him. Now, here's the danger that we face living in a broken world as broken people, living in, in imperfect churches and ministering in imperfect churches. We tend to struggle with role reversals. Whether it's in life, whether it's individually, corporately, we tend to struggle with role reversals. We tend to to sometimes forget that we answer to God. And God requires faithfulness. That we are not a steward, ultimately as we will see, ultimately, to any one individual. I like what one person says. He says this, the Corinthians must not think that ministers are responsible to no one. They are responsible before God for their work and must fulfill the task given to them. There is an accountability and, and, and pastorally, I will say that what a responsibility it is that, but by the grace of God, uh, you would shudder under the weight of knowing the stewardship from God for the people, the church placed under your care. But of course we know this, Paul says, it is God who works in me both to will and to do of his good pleasure. But there is a stewardship. There's a stewardship among the church leadership, whether whether, uh, full-time or lay leadership, that there is an answer to God for how the church is served and protected and ministered to. Paul understands what is required of him. As Christians, whether pastors, spiritual leaders, on an elder or deacon board, or Christians, we are all stewards of God and will give an account to Him. We will not be standing next to anyone else as we give an account. And lest you shudder, Under the seriousness of that, write down 1 Thessalonians 5.24. Faithful is He who calls you, who will surely do it. That is the promise that God has given you and me. God is faithful to complete the work He calls us to. None of us will ever stand before God saying, I did it all right. But what we will say is that Christ was for me. And He was working through me. Amen? A faithful steward recognizes his or her call in recognizing Your call, you recognize, you have yourself in a a, a right place, a proper perspective of yourself. You understand what is required of you, but also who the one is that's working through you. Second characteristic of a faithful steward is a steward not only recognizes his or her call, a steward ultimately answers to one person. Following up on what I just said in verse 2. A steward ultimately answers to one person. Now, when I was in high school, um, for several years, I worked at a cactus nursery. Got myself in some sticky situations. (laughs) I was was hoping to hear some more laughs than that. Right, Nico? (laughs) I try to tell Nico jokes when he comes over for piano lessons and things, and my goal is to get him to laugh. It doesn't happen much. But I worked, in, I worked in a cactus nursery, and the, the, uh, how, I, how I got the job is that I was best friends with the boss's son. And I, I worked with him, and, uh, and, and I kind of worked side, and side, uh, side by side with my best friend, uh, which, which made working in, in uh, 110, 120 degree greenhouses with humidity... Um, uh, it made it bearable. But, you know, sometimes my best friend and myself, you know, we would be doing the job and, and, and there could be some comfort I would sometimes find that I'm working with the boss's son. Because I would think, hey, man, something goes wrong, you know, it's on him. Or I'll just do what he tells me to do uh, because, you know, he's the boss's son. Well, that, that logic was very faulty, uh, because we would both get in trouble. And if we weren't doing the job right, it, it, it landed on both of us. It wasn't just, well, he's your son, I'm just following him. I didn't give an answer to myself. Or I didn't give an answer based on working with the boss's son. It was an answer for myself. And I answered to the boss, not to The boss's son. Well, a steward ultimately answers to one person. Look at what it says in verse 3. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. First of all, what we see Paul saying is he is explaining the shortcoming of the evaluation of other people. Again, it is not that there is no accountability in Paul's life. It is not that we are all, we're called to be accountable to one another. In the multitude of counselors, there is safety. Uh, we are to walk together as a church body um, so that, because there is safety. But ultimately, we answer to God. And that's why Paul says, but with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. You see, if we are, if we are looking at other people as the ultimate authority, the ultimate judge, then we're going to be off track living for others. We see here Paul mentions here first to be judged by you. He's talking about the judgment of others. Again, this is not a you-can't-judge-me attitude or you can't say anything against me because who are you? No, that's not the attitude Paul has. That would be the same pride the church in Corinth had. What Paul is saying is he's having a proper view of the priority of God's assessments over people's assessments. What others think are literally of, of least importance to Paul if it conflicts with what God says. Boy, isn't that convicting for us? I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm always struggling thinking well, what are other people thinking about this? What are other people saying? It's so easy to get into that role reversal that I talked about that we no longer start being stewards of God, but stewards of men. And this is a real-life struggle for Paul. You may say, why? Well, you, can, you don't have to turn there, you can read along with me, but if you flip a few pages in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 3, Paul says this, this is my defense to those who would examine me. And he continues what he's saying. There are those who are critiquing and judging Paul. And Paul says, I realize, verse 1, That my ultimate accountability and stewardship is to God because I will give an account for the stewardship of the gospel that He has placed on my life. And then he also says, judged by you or by any human court. So again, you get the idea of a courtroom. And and, and literally the Greek reads... um, Uh, Human court reads, human day. It's the the same idea. Have you ever heard someone say um, they're being falsely accused of something and maybe it's in the legal uh, realm and they say, I'm going to have my day in court. In other words, I'm going to be able to prove myself in my day in court against these faulty accusations. But Paul doesn't even say that. Paul doesn't say anything regarding the human realm. Why? Because he knows that God has the final verdict. Maybe you're a teenager today, and you're living all about and thinking all about what are my fellow classmates thinking about me? They know I'm different. They know I'm not doing all the other things that that others are doing. Listen, have peace with that. Because they are not the judge and jury. Maybe you're facing conflict because of your faith at work. Or in your own family with those who have rejected the truth. It is not up to you to justify yourself or have the final say because God alone gives the final verdict. So there's a shortcoming regarding the evaluations of others. It leads us down the road of living for others rather than what God says. Again, we are not talking about counsel from God's word that we are not accountable to anyone but we take that counsel from God's Word and we see that it's biblical. We heed it. Because if we do not, that too is accountability from God. But he also says that the uh, uh, something even more interesting. At, in verse 3, he says, In fact, I do not even judge myself. What's he saying there? We see in verses 3b to 4, Not only is there a shortcoming of the evaluations of others, but there is a shortcoming of self-evaluation. Did you know that we do not even have the final say about ourselves? What Paul is saying here, in fact, I do not even judge myself. We, we, We can't, I mean, anybody can take a passage from the Bible and take it out of context and use that for their argument. That's why we need to know God's word because arguments can sound really appealing. Somebody could take that out of context and say, you don't say anything about me and I'm not even worrying about myself because look at this verse. Paul is not talking about a lack of introspection, of self-examination. He's not talk, saying that he doesn't examine himself, but he's saying that ultimately even he has the lack of authority to have the final say in his life. I mean, we read later in 1 Corinthians 9 that Paul says that I, I, I put my body under subjection. I'm so careful because less that I run my race properly, lest when I preach to others... I myself become disqualified. Paul was all about self-examination in the proper sense. But he was saying at the end of the day, I'm not even putting my confidence in what I think about myself because I'm not my own master. We all have a problem with rationalization, don't we? Isn't it amazing the things we can rationalize? I mean, the Bible says in Proverbs uh, 4, I think it's verse 23, um, the, um, the heart is desperately wicked, it's deceitful. Who can know it? Man, we can have a deceived heart. In fact, we can even have a conscience uh, uh, about a particular area of, and if it's not biblically informed, even what our conscience tells us can be wrong. So Paul is saying here, we do not justify ourselves. We, the, the idea that, that we all have that, well, I see it this way and, 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 and therefore that's the way it is for me, that is not a biblical statement. Because it's God's Word that has the final say, not our own self-thoughts and reasonings that justify things in our own mind. In verse 4, he says, he talks about that he does have a clear conscience. He says, for I am not aware of anything against myself. But then notice what he says, but I am not thereby acquitted. I don't have the final say. I could be wrong." And then he says, It is the Lord who judges me. How slow we must be in our thinking to be sure that it is biblical. It is God who has the final say. And where does God reveal his mind? It is through his word. It is the Lord who judges me. So if there is a shortcoming of the evaluation of others, if there is a shortcoming of self-evaluation, what is a proper evaluation? And that's the phrase I just read at the end of verse 4. It is the Lord who judges me. It's interesting. This is already the sixth time the word "judge" is used in 1 Corinthians, and it's the third time it's used just in verses three to four. Why is that? Because the Corinthian church was placing all sorts of verdicts and judgments about who Paul was, who Apollos was, who Cephas was, uh, whether they were really uh, that, that some claimed even piously, "I follow Christ." And there were all sorts of judgments being made. Uh, There there were judgments as to what it meant to truly be walking in wisdom. God says, it is the Lord who is the ultimate judge. So so what's our conclusion here? What what, what do we conclude about this? Verse 5 says, therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time. What he's saying here is that judgment will happen at the right time. Continues in verse 5, before the, Do not pronounce judgment before the right time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. In other words, judgment will happen at the right time, ultimate judgment at Christ's return, by the right judge, it will be Jesus who will bring to light things hidden in darkness to close the purposes of the heart, and it will be with the final say. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Or receive his praise from God. In other words, what he is saying here is not that there is not to be decisions and spiritual uh, uh, decisions that, that leaders that, that a church makes. Uh, Pastor Dennis is going to talk in chapter five about a, a, a church decision that had to be made. Paul's not saying that, that there are no decisions that are made, but what he is saying is that if we are placing decisions and judgments on the wrong basis, then we are in trouble because a judge is coming and he has the final say. And as we we looked in chapter 3, there were leaders in the church and some of those leaders were believers. And, but they weren't building on the gospel. And Paul says their works will be burned away even though they will be saved, though as through fire. But then he also said there are individuals that are seeking to destroy the temple of God. And that is not acceptable. It says God will destroy them. And then we see... The church at odds. And this is where we need to take into account that God is the ultimate judge. So priority number one, kingdom priority number one, is that we as individuals and we as the church must be faithful stewards and as a church, faithful in our stewardship. And I'm just going to introduce this to you this morning, uh, priority number two, and I'm combining these for a reason I'll explain next week. Humility and true value. And I'm I'm not talking simply about true value that God sees in us. I'm talking about us making true value statements on other things. Humility and true value. I want to finish up Paul's thought here in verses 6 to 7. Paul gives us a wake-up call to humility. How are we to respond to what we've just read? Well, here's the application. We are to have a wake-up call to humility. Paul uses himself and Apollos as direct application in verse 6. It seems in the church in Corinth that, yes, um, there was a following for Cephas uh, or Peter Um, But it seems that the main source of division was between Paul and Apollos because Paul mentions Apollos the most. And he gives a direct application in verse 6. He says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you be puffed up in favor of one against another. You see, Paul's attitude is to be our attitude, that he is seeking to apply the truth of God's word, not simply to others, but to himself. And he's doing this for the benefit of the church. He's saying, for your benefit, I'm using myself and Apollos as examples. Follow us that you don't go beyond what is written. You see, our attitudes are to be guided by Scripture, not simply our own thinking. When when you make a decision, is it guided by God's Word? Or do you simply think within your own wisdom and logic? So many times we can go beyond what is written in Scripture. We don't have time to, get to, to go into detail, but what Paul is talking about throughout chapters one to three, he is continually quoted from the Old Testament. Chapter one, verse 19 and verse 31, chapter two, verse nine and verse 16, chapter three, verses 19 and 20. All of these quotations he takes from the Old Testament deals with our place, in relation to God and His wisdom. That we are to look to Him as the source and the origin of wisdom, not ourselves. You see, pride is the center focus here. And that's why Paul gives this warning in verse 6, that none of us go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against the other. When there are divisions in a church, mark it down, the source Is pride and fleshliness. And Paul says, Do not allow this to take place. Do not go beyond what is written. Boy, isn't that a scary place that as individuals and as a church we could put our own wisdom above scripture and go with that and go beyond what is written? How prideful! How scary! Men who are, we're called to lead our homes, how prideful for us to lead our homes and not to be on our knees in dependence upon the Lord with our Bible open, seeking to know God's Word to lead our families in it. How prideful for any of us to do this, whether individually, in our families, or as a church. You see, there's direct application Paul gives us, just as he applies it to himself. But as we close verse 7, there are some direct questions that Paul gives the Corinth church that he must also give us. Look at verse 7. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? You see the type of pride that's being played out in the church? In Corinth? As one theologian says, Paul offers a list of questions dealing with the who, the what, and the why. Why? And I want to reword some of these questions for you to give you the sense of what Paul's saying. In verse 7, when he says, For who sees anything different in you? um, I like the way that the the CSB translation uh, translates that For who makes you so superior? So in other words, Paul is saying, hey, there is a disunity going on in the body of Christ and it's stemming by going beyond what the Scriptures say, going beyond biblical truth, and it's sourced in pride, and who makes you so superior that you do not need to follow Scripture? The, f- the question here is, who do you think you are? Who do I think I am. Boy, isn't that a gut check? How about the second part to that? What do you think you have that you did not receive? That's a what question. What do you think you have gained on your own? And then at the end, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? You could reword that. Why are you acting so ignorantly. Walking around like we're the king of the world. As if we have anything that we did not receive from God. You see folks, pride so easily creeps in our hearts that we must daily confront our pride. And through the power of God's word, as Paul says, that we are to cast down every vain thought that lifts itself up against the supremacy of Christ. That is what it looks to live for God's kingdom. To see the stewardship that we have been given and through the dependence of the Lord to be faithful And then to walk in humility before God and before others, clinging to his word as our one and only authority.